It is the deadliest migrant smuggling incident on U.S. soil, and it's on President Biden's watch. I'm sending you letters, and I'm making it clear in these letters that, look, Mr. President, I support you, but I'm watching you lose support among my fellow sheriffs in the state of Texas. Her sister would cry and would say, do you want this to happen to you? What if they rape you? For this fiscal year alone, we're well over 150 deaths. What that translates to is our men and women are the ones that are out there that are making these discoveries, that are recovering uh, bodies from the river, that are seeing people in terrible circumstances and doing everything they can to pull them out and, and save their lives. And, and in many instances, they are successful, but unfortunately, not every time. It's just it, it, the, the odds are stacked against them. This is not a Central uh, South America issue. This is a global issue. I'm Demi Virging of Sinclair Broadcasting in San Antonio, Texas, for this edition of Immigration Crisis, the fight for the southern border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott's new order for the Texas National Guard to deport migrants at the border comes on the heels of the worst smuggling tragedy in U.S. history. 53 migrants died in the back of an 18-wheeler right here in San Antonio, five of them children, all trapped in the trailer in temperatures above 100 degrees. This is harsh terrain and harsh weather, and because of the way that the Biden administration is not enforcing the immigration laws is attracting people and enticing people to make this very dangerous trek, causing them to lose their lives. I urge the president, stop the loss of lives. You have the ability to stop people from losing their lives if you make it clear that no one can come across illegally. There's a perfectly legal way that people can immigrate to the United States of America. It's that legal pathway, Mr. President, that you must insist upon. And if you do that, you will have a role in reducing the loss of life. News not necessarily welcomed by all in Texas. Others like Democratic Sheriff Javier Salazar of Bear County, which covers San Antonio, is not supporting the move by Abbott, but is also not happy with the Biden administration's lack of response to his and other sheriff's requests for more federal help. You have sent yet another letter to the Biden administration. I have to be clear with people who are listening in today that you are also a Democrat. This letter was pretty strong. So what did you say in that letter? Well, look, it was born of frustration. I thought it through before I sent it because it was my third letter, but that made it even more kind of infuriating. I'm sending you letters and I'm making it clear in these letters that, look, Mr. President, I support you but I'm watching you lose support among my fellow uh, sheriffs in the state of Texas. I don't like the, the state's approach to it. I haven't jumped on board with Operation Lone Star. I just, I feel like it's the wrong approach. I've seen other, other sheriffs jump on board with it. And, you know, they did what they had to do for their county. Um, but I'm doing what I have to do for my county. And mine is to try to get the help of the federal government through these three letters that I've sent. 
Sheriff Salazar's deputies had the difficult duty of trying to find some 80 migrants who were calling 911 from the back of a tanker trailer traveling somewhere in the San Antonio area last year. Those screams were from last year. Salazar says the tanker trailer was near the site of the incident where the 53 migrants died just a few weeks ago, which is just off I-35, which travels all the way south to South America and all the way north to Canada. But will the sounds and the images of these tragedies be enough to change the minds of thousands who are still making their way to the U.S.-Texas border from all over the world? During my recent trip to Panama City, Panama, I met a Colombian woman who was feeling the pressure of a husband who has American dreams. Her family in Colombia was begging her not to continue traveling north and paying coyotes to cross them into the U.S. But even after hearing the horror story, she was still on the fence whether she would stay or go north with her husband. So we're here with Stephanie, who's from Colombia. She's 44 years old. She made it here to Panama, and she is working as a nanny in Panama City, Panama. The interview we're doing now is about that desire that her husband has mixed in with the fears that she has and all the things she's heard of what happens to people and her wanting also to do things the right way. Stephanie, primero que todo, ¿cómo llegaste a Panama? How did you make it here to Panama? Una amiga me invitó porque Colombia estaba duro, pues estaba duro económicamente y me dijo, "Véngase para acá que acá hay trabajo." Wow, so through a friend who invited her and told her, "Come to Panama, there's a lot of jobs here." And she came because Colombia is so difficult. Cuando dices que Colombia está difícil, when you say Colombia is difficult, ¿cómo está difícil para la gente que no sabe? For the people that eh, don't know how. El trabajo. Economically, eh, work. Con la edad que yo tengo ya, o sea, nosotros ya no... With the age that I have, there's no work. Así que a tu edad de 44 Exacto, años... Ya como que no hay como trabajo para nosotros, digámoslo así. Oh, wow, Entonces, she says there is no work for someone that's 44. ¿Por qué? Porque de pronto le gusta, pues ya como la juventud, de pronto que porque uno ya tiene más, uno tiene un poco de experiencia, digámoslo así. They like more of the younger people. Um, 44 to me is still young, so I'm kind of shocked by that. Entonces, ¿de dónde salió esto que quieren ir, que quieren ir, que tu esposo quiere ir? Where did this come from, that her, your husband wants to go? Cuando yo vivía en, en Río Abajo. Y entonces, ahí había muchos venezolanos. O sea, puros cuartos. Vivía muchos venezolanos. Y todos se fueron. In the area where she lived in Panama, which is called Rio Bajo, when she lived in that area, there were a lot of Venezuelans, and they rented rooms, and all of a sudden, they all left. ¿Dónde fueron? Where did they go? Todos fueron a Estados Unidos. They all went to the United Todos States, she said. Así, que con el coyote, With the coyotes. Uno se fueron de Salvador, otros salieron de Colombia, bueno, y todos pasaron, entonces, 
un día me voy yo con mi pareja un domingo allá donde mis compañeras y ah que todos se fueron que todos han pasado y se nos metió so a lot of them went through Colombia Nicaragua and they all were allegedly able to get in so one Sunday they went to go visit friends and you know that's that's where it came that her husband all of a sudden he wanted to go he wanted to try like everybody else that they knew he wanted to try and get to the United States y, y de ahí como como la pensaron nada más nos vamos caminando ya do we just leave and go sí, walking or what de, was the plan uno de ellos que se fue en diciembre nos regaló el número del coyote one of your friends una de tus amistades sí, uh, one of the men who lived there gave him the contact to the coyote aquí. y el coyote dónde estaba la verdad no sé porque como le digo era un número colombiano she didn't know but the number was Colombian so the number was Colombian for the coyote that was going to cross her eso, at the Texas border eso nos quedó sonando porque, pues, and, and that kept resonating in her head like si why está, would the coyote si be in Colombia pues, no sé, yeah, why would he have a Colombian number if he's crossing us in Mexico to go to the US okay eh, bueno, mi esposo lo contactó, habló con él. Le dijo que nos cobraba 1,700 por cada uno. So her husband called the coyote and he told him that he would charge them 1,700 each one of them to cross them. ¿Dónde te iban a cruzar? Metiéndonos por me Mexicano. Algo así de Mexicali. Mexicali. Por California. Decía él, sí, él le dijo a mi esposo. Oh, Pero so this one que... wanted to cross them through... Um, through California. Pero que nosotros hablamos con él como en marzo y nosotros teníamos planes para irnos 15 de abril. So they spoke to him in March and their plans were to go April 15th. Antes de que quitaran el tal título ese ese right ese before sí, Title 42. She doesn't quite know the name but she goes the the, the título the title thing before it went away. Okay. Eh, entonces el hombre dice cuando ya estemos a unos días eh, vuelven y me contactan porque yo tengo que mirar es que cuando uno pasa allá un compañero de él como que uno le unta la mano con 100 dólares y que lo pasa ok so the guy said when it's a couple of days away you're to contact me at this number because he has to check with the guy that he would hand them over to to cross them make the final crossing across the border ¿Qué le dijeron? ¿Te explicaron que iban a haber riesgos o no? Ah, no. Él no dijo nada. Él dijo, ustedes ya vienen hasta tal parte, de ahí yo los recojo. Los dejo tipo dos cuadras, a lo que nosotros llamamos pues dos cuadras de migración. Ya ustedes van caminando y se entregan. So, I said, did he tell you that there were going to be any problems, what the risks were? She goes, oh, no. He just said he was going to take us two blocks away. And then you would walk across the bridge and you give yourself up to border patrol agents. So she's saying that he told them you may be there a month, two months, and you know, you'll be stuck there with border patrol that long. And then after a while, you know, they'll allow you to call your family once your paperwork's done, and then they can, you can leave with your family. Se oye bien fácil. It sounds so simple. Dice que por eso era que mi esposo él estaba, porque eso se escuchaba, 
Es más, yo se lo conté a mi, a mi hermana y mi hermana me dijo, por Dios. Her husband wanted to do it. He was ready to go. And then she says she told her sister in Chicago, and her sister said, my God, it sounds so simple. It cannot be. That is not true. ¿Qué más te decían? No, pues, eso sí fue pues como lo... Cuando ya yo decide, yo le digo a él, yo no, yo no voy a tomar ese riesgo. Okay. Once no she spoke ir. to her sister, she told him, no, I don't want to go anymore. Él I don't want to take that risk. And él he kept demasiado. insisting. He insisted a lot, demasiado. Entonces yo le borré el número del contacto. Yo lo eliminé. Oh my God, she's too funny. She says that she erased the number for the coyote from his phone. Se lo eliminé. Y, y ya entonces él lo buscaba, él lo buscaba y no lo encontraba. And he kept looking for it, he kept looking for it, and he couldn't find it because Stephanie had deleted the number from the cell phone. ¿Por qué lo eliminaste? Yo, ¿por qué no? ¿Por qué no? Then he asked her. A ninguna parte. Why porque, did you get rid of him? She said, because we're not going anywhere. Es un peligro porque ese tipo, si ese tipo está por allá, porque tiene un número, entienda, porque él tiene un, o sea, a mí eso, yeah. a mí eso no me dejó no la cabeza. She says that the one thing colombiano. going over and over and over in her head was, if that guy is over there at the border, why would he have a Colombian number? And that's what kept bothering her in the back of her mind. ¿Y qué te dice tu hija? What was Cuando your daughter telling you? lo que íbamos a hacer, le dijo, ay, mamá, qué miedo, eso es peligroso, mamá, yo he visto tantas cosas, pues que ya también, es que todo el mundo lo dice y lo ve, lo que pasa es que no es... Her daughter kept telling her, why are you doing this? I've seen so many things. You know, and, and, and she cried. She, her daughter was crying. <sighs> now, and then her daughter started investigating. She said she started looking up stuff and sending her stuff that she would find. Her daughter told her, Mom, look at all the things. Look, look. It was kind of like a, a torment for her daughter that she was watching all this stuff go on and telling her, Mom, look what can happen to you. And she finally told her, don't worry, don't worry, I'm not going to do this. And then she says her sister also was sending her stuff. Tu hermana también con eso en la cabeza. Nena, usted va a hacer eso, nena. Mira tantas cosas. Mira, aquí llegó un amigo. Se trajo otros amigos. Hay uno que no aparece. Un amigo no aparecía. So. Y el otro llegó en silla de ruedas. ¿Y el otro qué le pasó? Que llegó en silla de ruedas. Sin duda le dieron una muenda y le aporrearon las piernas. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So she says that her sister told her one guy uh, disappeared that they knew, and the other guy, when he finally was released, was in a wheelchair. He had gone into an accident and lost. ¿Perdió una pierna? Sí, okay. Porque llegó en silla de ruedas. Se supone, dice mi hermana, que sin duda que lo golpearon. Oh, they beat him at the border. Y, they beat him. Y perdió una pierna. Y, y, y perdió una pierna. Dice, ¿usted quiere que le pase eso? Que la viole. No, no, ella lloraba también. That's her sister would cry and would say, do you want this to happen to you? What if they rape you? Pero no, que mi esposo me decía, es que usted no va sola. Yo voy con usted. Y si a mí me están haciendo daño, ¿usted qué va a poder hacer? Antes también se lo hacen a usted. Pero es que, pues, ellos, él como con el desespero de... He was desperate and he would tell her, you're not going by yourself, I'm going with you. I'm going with you. And she would tell him, what are you going to do? They're going to beat you up and then they're going to attack me. But she said he was desperate to go. 
Así que, ¿dónde están ahora mismo? ¿Qué han decidido? No, estamos, nos quedamos en Panamá. Then she said, sí, no, they're staying in Panamá. Hagamos las cosas bien y, y si Dios nos tiene para estar allá, ir a trabajar y, y un mejor futuro, que es lo que uno anhela. Yeah, she said they're going to stay in Panama. Yeah. She said in the future, if things come up and they can do it the right way, and they can go over there and work and have a better life, which is what everyone desires, but doing it legally, then they'll do it. But for now, they're staying here in Panama. And the dangers she and others face are unimaginable. Chief Owens of the Del Rio sector of Border Patrol tells us there are thousands of heartbreaking stories of migrants at the hands of coyotes and Mother Nature that he will never forget. And now we're joined by Chief Owens. He's been here with us before out in the Del Rio sector, which includes Eagle Pass, Uvalde, and they can fill us in on a little bit more. Well, good morning, Yami. It's good to join you again. And yes, we're, we're up here at the Del Rio sector in uh, in Del Rio, Texas. The, the sector itself is is quite large. It encompasses 47 different counties down here in, in Texas and, and six different checkpoints across 53,000 square miles. And right now, this is absolutely ground zero. It is the, uh, the, the focal point, the busiest area along our U.S.-Mexico border. And with that said, a lot of what you do, and especially with Borstar, some of the things that people are not seeing, when do you guys go out for your specialized type of mission? This particular team They have a wide range of specialties that, quite frankly, doesn't exist in a lot of other other teams. They do technical rescue for you know for cliffs and, and mountain. They do swift water rescue. There's they specialize in medical. We have paramedics that are trained. We have uh, folks that are that are wilderness EMTs. We have uh, they they specialize in navigation. Uh, they are the ones that that are that are called upon to respond for uh, when we assist with hurricane responses, when we assist with, uh, with uh, natural disasters. They, they deploy as part of our special operations package. And to be able to maintain the, this, uh, this training's proficiency, it requires a tremendous amount of effort on their part. But each and every one of these folks, they, they do it because they care, because they feel that calling. And they could quite easily uh, go out and do the job of a Border Patrol agent and, and do it every single day and, and, uh, and get paid exactly the same. And, but Because this matters to them, because the people they see matter to them, because saving lives matters to them, they choose to step up and do this voluntarily. So while they are humble, I certainly, uh, I certainly think they, they deserve a lot more praise than they ever asked for. Let me ask you, if, if, are there any specific cases? Because I, it's easy to go through that list, but there's always a case that everybody remembers, the one that they can't get out of their mind. Is there a specific case uh, that you remember? Speaking on a, a higher level, the sheer number that our men and women are seeing right now, you know, the, the, the volume that's coming at us, with that comes the increased rescues, the, unfortunately, the, the increased deaths. We're, for this fiscal year alone, we're well over 150 deaths. And what that, what that translates to is our men and women are the ones that are out there that are making these discoveries, that are recovering uh, bodies from the river, that are seeing people in terrible circumstances and doing everything they can to pull them out and, and save their lives. And, and in many instances, they are successful, but unfortunately, Not every time. It's just it, it, the the odds are stacked against them. So you bring up a great point, Yami. The uh, our our men and women are subjected to and exposed to 
really a, a, a type of trauma in the things that they have to see. And they have to, uh, they have to bear that, uh, that burden, shoulder that burden. And they do so voluntarily. I think it would be hard to say that there's any one instance that's going to that's gonna stick with people because of the sheer volume that they do see. But a uh, very good point in that a lot of people don't think about the fact that these are things that, uh, that, that don't leave you. When you see things like this, they stick with you. And, and uh, it's, it's tough on the men and women that choose to step up and serve and answer this call. How many times? And, and I think people, you know, just see the numbers and we want definitely to people, we want definitely people to know that, I, I mean, you guys are human beings. You're, yes, you've seen the numbers. We're getting groups that are bigger than 300, 400. You know, I see the press releases every day, but how different is it for you guys also when you're dealing with children and having your own families? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll share with you. Uh, I was talking to uh, one of my friends that was, uh, he was actually on his way home yesterday from work and past that, that, that area that we've been seeing a lot of the large groups cross. And so he stopped to help because as, as you can imagine with the, the volume that we're seeing, we're, we're shorthanded in the field. And so for a group of over 275, there were three agents on the ground to, uh, to deal with them. So he pulled off in, in his vehicle to, uh, to assist. And in that group was a family from Ecuador that had a 17-day-old infant with them that had given birth. The mom had given birth in a stash house in Mexico, hadn't gone to the hospital, hadn't been, uh, hadn't been checked up on, neither had the child, and was moved from that stash house, crossed the river, and in that particular area, the migrants have to walk about a mile and a half. And, and you know as well as anybody what the extreme temperatures are like here, in the, especially in, in Del Rio. Imagine yes. that, a 17-day-old infant. Thank God that uh, the Border Patrol agents were there and, and were able to uh, take them into custody. Nobody has any business walking out in the desert in these areas for any length of time. These are areas that, that people were not meant to be. And the one thing I will say about not just Border Star agents, but but all border patrol agencies, these are areas they live and work each and every day. They go into these areas where people are not meant to be, and they're saving lives every single day. They're answering 911 calls, and a lot of times, especially in this sector, uh, we do answer the majority of the 911 calls that, that are received by these different uh, communities. And let me ask you. With the large numbers that you're seeing now, what how big are the groups that you're seeing right now? So they range in size. We consider a large group to be a group of more than a hundred people crossing at once. And so it's sad to say, but that that number of uh, you know this just one hundred is actually becoming uh, you know relatively small by comparison. We have seen groups in excess of 500 people. It was a couple of days ago, we had a group of, I believe it was 531. We've had multiple groups that were 400 plus, 300 plus. I had Congressman Chip Roy doing a CODEL with this, and he got to witness firsthand a group of, I think it was 377. The Del Rio sector, and more specifically Eagle Pass, accounts for 53% of all large group encounters for the entire U.S. Border Patrol. That gives you a sense of just how active the Del Rio sector is, and more specifically, the area of Eagle Pass. And with that said, let me ask you, because a lot of people think that it is mostly uh, people from Mexico, Guatemala, uh, Honduras. 
I understand that the groups that you're seeing right now are not necessarily from those countries. No. So first off, the Del Rio sector alone this fiscal year has seen people from 109 different countries. This is not a Central uh, South America issue. This is a global issue. We literally have people crossing through our area from all over the world. The majority of what we're seeing right now are folks that come from countries like Venezuela, from Cuba, from Colombia, from Nicaragua. These countries are make up the vast majority of the, the groups that we're seeing. And the majority of what we see are single adults. Thank you for joining me for this edition of Immigration Crisis, the fight for the southern border. Next week, we go to Del Rio, Texas, as large groups of migrants, as large as 500 in some cases, cross into the U.S. through private Texas ranches. I'm Jamie Virgen. Until the next time.